So what I'm going to first start with is um, just kind of a basic overview of mechanical ventilation. And I have kind of like an hour to do mechanical ventilation and a few case studies, which it's kind of hard to compress all of that in. So I'll kind of focus on the things that are um, usually the ones that kind of confuse people. But um, I just want to kind of do a basic overview of mechanical ventilation. Um, my name is Eric Endel, like he had said. Um, I'm the pediatric services supervisor. I've been this position for 17, well, seven years now. I've been here at the institution for 17 years. And I focus mostly in pediatric neonatal, but I do um, do all the education for the adult side as well. So this is some of a lecture that I give to nursing as a general overview for all ICU nurses. I do this for paramedics in the critical care paramedic course that's taught through the EMSLRC. So this is kind of the familiar, this is the same type of um, material that they get taught. The things that I want to kind of go over a little bit more detail than what I go in with them is basically what are the lung mechanics when we're mechanically ventilating. So when we, take, when we talk about um, mechanical ventilation, we're talking about what's called positive pressure ventilation. We're designed to work off of negative pressure ventilation with our diaphragm causing uh, pressure changes intrathoracically to move air in and out of the lungs. So when we start introducing positive pressure ventilation, we're going against the body's normal physiology. So to know what the, the normal is uh, kind of helps protect uh, the body from what we're trying to do by damaging it. So when we look at the entire lung structures, I'm not going to go into great depth. Um, if you remember this, um, when you look at the entire lung volumes, what we're looking at for mechanical ventilation, uh, we're talking tidal volumes, which are the small basic volumes that you're breathing with each breath. And with that, what you're seeing here, this is such a very small portion of your entire lung mechanics. Okay, so there is a lot more gas that's inside the lungs that there is to work with that we're not having active participation with. Okay, <laughs> so with mechanical ventilation, we're just working mostly with this small parameter right here. Now I'm going to get into a little bit more with PEEP. And this is where some people really don't understand the function of PEEP. But PEEP is going to uh, affect uh, what we call the FRC, or the functional residual capacity. So mostly what we're looking at, when we are looking with mechanical ventilation, we're looking here, and we're going to be looking here, and be aware of what's up here. So with mechanical ventilation, the terminology that when we set parameters, we're basically setting a respiratory rate, which is how many breaths per minute, and how much volume you're going to give with each breath. And that's called your tidal volume. So <laughs> the tidal volume is usually reflected in a measurement of cc's or in liter. Um, when you set your respiratory rate and tidal volume, your respiratory rate should be based off of normal physiologic respiratory rates based upon age. So uh, adults, normally about 10 to 14 breaths per minute would be a normal starting time. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm kind of getting over cold, so as I talk, I kind of get a tickle in my throat. But with the tidal volume, the volumes that are set can be varied based upon the philosophy of ventilation that you're taught or you want to practice. The, the different types of ventilation strategies, even within this institution, are from the extremes on both sides. When I first started here, the whole thought process throughout the entire hospital, even from neonatals up to adults, was tidal volume ranges of 10 to 15 cc's per kilogram. Okay? Now what we have come to find out is using those high tidal volume ranges causes damage to the lungs. It's increased pressure. So most of the philosophy is smaller tidal volumes. 
So generally around our institution here in a lot of the adult areas, you're looking on average of around 10 cc's per kilogram, but that's based on a range of about 8 to 12. Now there are the other end of the philosophy where um, you have lung uh, protective strategies. This is mostly used in like the med ICU. So if you've done your rotations in the medical ICU, you'll see tidal volumes in the range of like 4 to 8 cc's per kilogram up to 10 per kilogram. Has anybody ever done rotations in like your med ICU and seen that type of ventilation strategy? So what they're doing is people are starting to use ventilators with lower and lower tidal volumes to protect the lungs because positive pressure is not what the lungs were designed for. So anytime you start increasing the volume in the lungs, you're increasing air leak and damage to the alveoli. So using smaller and smaller tidal volumes seems to be the course everybody is going towards. When I'm teaching all my paramedics, teaching nursing and my RTs, what a general starting tidal volume is, most of the time what people don't realize or they remember is tidal volumes are based off of what's ideal body weight. If you have somebody that, like me, my ideal body weight is between 70 and 80 kilograms, but I weigh 100. So am I going to start out at a liter tidal volume? For me, an ideal body weight, like I said, is 7 to 80, 70 to 80 kilograms. My tidal volume should be around 700 to 800 cc's. So <clears throat> knowing what the ideal body weight is, is what you're going to target with. And then calculating out a starting tidal volume based upon that. An easy number to calculate is always 10, 10 per kilo. And if you think about a lot of what's out in the literature, the high range has 10, the medium range has 10, and the lower range buffers on that 10 per kilo range. So it's a good starting point for finding a tidal volume. And then look at other your parameters once you get the patient placed on the mechanical ventilator to see, do you need to adjust from there? Does that make sense? So 10 per kilo is a very easy starting point for people to look at ventilation. So whenever you start adjusting tidal volumes, if you start going on the lower end of tidal volume ranges, you then have to compensate for the respiratory rate going up higher than normal physiologic respiratory rates. Because minute ventilation is the amount of volume delivered in a one minute's period of time, and that's the value that is affecting CO2 elimination. So just as you exercise, you're creating more CO2 from metabolism, you've got to blow it off. You breathe faster and you breathe deeper. So it's the same way with mechanical ventilation. You want to blow off CO2, what you do is you effectively change minute ventilation and you do that by either changing respiratory rate or tidal volume. Pretty basic. <clears throat> so when we set our tidal volumes and our respiratory rates, we have to know how fast we want to get those breaths in. So we actually set how fast that breath goes in. That's called the inspiratory time. Inspiratory time is the amount of time it takes from the beginning of the inspiratory phase to the beginning of the expiratory phase. So the whole inspiratory period is the breath in. Expiratory phase starts from the time that the patient starts to exhale until the next inhalation starts. And when we look to see how much time we have for inspiration and expiration, it's called total cycle time. So if you have a respiratory rate of 10 set on your ventilator, that means I have 10 breaths per minute. I have six <laughs> seconds for each breath to get in and out before the next breath comes. So knowing what your total cycle time is, we then will set our inspiratory times to affect what's called the IE ratio. IE ratio is the amount of time you have from inspiration to expiration as a ratio. 
I can push air in faster positive pressure than it passively elastic recoil comes out of the lungs. So with mechanical ventilation, you want a minimum, if possible, one to two IE ratio, if not a greater ratio. Because exhalation takes longer than I can push it in with the positive pressure. So traditional IE ratio is minimum of one to two. Does that make sense so far? So with inspiratory times on a normal adult, we're looking about one to 1.2 seconds for an inspiratory time. And it's not uncommon then to have an IE ratio of one to five, one to six, that's fine. You've got a lot of time for them to exhale. Now when the patient wants to spontaneously breathe on their own when they're mechanically ventilating, that's gonna happen during that long expiratory phase that you give them, okay? That's when they're gonna be spontaneously breathing on their own. So patients that require a longer inspiratory phase, we may adjust that based upon the flow resistance of our ventilators delivering the breath. Stiffer lungs, when you think about a machine, a, a mechanical ventilator is really stupid. It's only gonna do what you tell it to do. So you have to be the one smart enough to know what it's doing. So the way resistance works, flow is a key component. I can't change density of the gas and I usually can't change the diameter of the airway or the length of the airway. So flow seems to be the one thing I can adjust. If I lengthen out the inspiratory phase that gives the breath in slower, I have less resistance to gas flow and I can get better ventilation that way. So adjusting inspiratory times based upon resistance is one of the things I have at my disposal. But what I look for is to maintain an IE ratio of about one to two to one to three. So when I'm looking at my tidal volume that I've set, um, what will happen then, based upon how fast I'm giving that breath, I will measure out what's called the peak inspiratory pressure. Now the peak inspiratory pressure is the maximum pressure that is generated in the circuit when gas flow is entering the lungs. This is what we call a dynamic pressure. So this is measured with gas flow occurring inside the circuit. So as the machine is giving the breath, it's measured con continuously throughout the respiratory phase. The highest pressure generated is called the peak pressure. <coughs> now it's the most common used because it's the easiest to measure. You can measure it all the time in the circuit. Even with a basic manometer, you can see what this pressure is. Now, when I set a peak inspiratory, when I set a volume on the, on the ventilator with resistance, like I said, I cannot change much uh, the diameter, the length, and the viscosity of the gas. I can change flow rates to affect resistance. And that's where it's gonna be reflected in my peak inspiratory pressure. Whenever we look at a patient and we measure peak inspiratory pressure, it has to take into, it's taking into account the resistance of the circuit from the ventilator. It's not just the patient. So the peak inspiratory pressure doesn't really give you an accurate representation of what the peak pressure is at the alveoli. Does that make sense? Because you have higher pressure inside the circuit, the alveoli in the lungs are not seeing that pressure it attenuates down through the airways. To know what the pressure is at the airways, we can do a maneuver called a pause pressure or, or do what's a static pressure. What we do at that time is we hold the breath. So when we give the breath in, the machine's given the breath, let's say I have a peak pressure of 40 centimeters of water pressure, the airway pressure in the lungs starts to come up 
but the machine may stop flow and allow the patient to exhale so it drops off to zero now the patient can exhale if I hold this breath in and not let them switch to the expiratory phase it's called a pause an inspiratory pause if I create an inspiratory pause my peak pressure will go up to 40 my lungs will be coming up with their airway pressure I pause this so they don't exhale gas flow stops so the pressure inside the circuit will drop and the lungs and the pressure in the circuit will equalize and then I allow them to exhale and that pause pressure is an actual alveolar pressure it's more representative of what the pressure is at the alveoli as long as your airways are patent does that make sense so whenever you have somebody that has very stiff lungs it may take a high peak pressure but when you hold a pause it may be very low because the pressure in the lungs it hasn't accepted that volume to create that pressure in the lungs okay an obstructed patient may be very high because they're holding all that pressure in the lungs and you're just kind of matching it there to see how bad it is so one way that we use pause pressures is if we have a patient that we're hearing wheezing and we want to see if we're getting response from a bronchodilator I can do this pause maneuver I can hold the breath see what the pause pressure is <coughs> give a bronchodilator or do something that's going to hopefully improve um, airway diameter and check it again in about 15-30 minutes and see if I have a decrease in that pause pressure. If I have a decrease then I've got more lung open to accept volume. So that's how we will use a pause pressure. We don't generally set a pause pressure when we do ventilation, even though on the mechanical ventilators in the ICUs, you have that option to set it with every single breath. But how many people actually breathe and hold their breath with every single breath? They don't. So is it natural? Um, one of the things that I try and teach my, my staff and other people with this course is, you know, ventilation, you can look at the numbers and you can try and do the best you can, but as long as you're looking at the patient and seeing, does that look comfortable? is the key. So once I start looking at all of this and set it all, I then look at the patient and say, does that look comfortable? And I'll adjust from there. Because if I have a patient that has a very long inspiratory time and it looks uncomfortable, are you going to keep them there? Probably not, because when they wake up, they're not going to like it. So <clears throat> it's an art form of ventilating. And once you get used to it and playing with it a lot, it makes more sense but knowing where those parameters are coming from will help you understand what it is the changes that you're making um, how they're affecting so peak pressure we measure all the time it's not a true reflective pressure of the alveoli but the reason that we trend with it is because we can have it every single breath and once the circuit and the airway are established you're not changing that once your settings are in place you're not changing your flow rates breath to breath if your peak pressure changes there's one thing that's going to be causing that change and that's the lungs so that way you get that constant feedback breath to breath to breath now mean airway pressure is the average pressure generated in the lungs and this is the part where people are the most confused because when you think about minute ventilation, minute ventilation controls CO2 elimination, minute ventilation drives oxygenation. Okay, and this is where people will get confused and this is where I'm going to kind of focus here a little bit because the key component to that is PEEP and when I had shown you that lung mechanics FRC comes into play here. So PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure and 
what it's doing is it's pretty much maintaining the lung expansion <coughs> during the expiratory phase. So when you think about how the lungs and the alveoli are working, <coughs> your alveoli are the balloon. When you have a balloon fresh out of the bag and you want to blow the air into that balloon, it's very difficult to get that breath in, okay, because there's high surface tension on that balloon. You can stretch it. That decreases surface tension. It gets easier for that breath to get in. One, one way to then make it easier to get a breath in, once you stretch it, is blow the balloon up, and then when you let the air back out, don't let it collapse all the way. If you let it collapse all the way, that surface tension is very high again, and you have the same problem of getting the next breath back into that balloon. But if you keep that balloon distended slightly, push the next breath in, it takes that breath easier because the surface tension of that balloon is much lower. So PEEP is kind of working on the same philosophy. It's going to do two things. It's one, it's going to maintain patency of the airways themselves if you have somebody that has floppy airways when they sleep. That's the same thing as CPAP. And it will keep the alveolar recruitment. So whatever you have for alveolar recruitment will be maintained as long as you have an adequate PEEP level. Throughout this institution, PEEP is a standard of about five centimeters of water pressure as a baseline. You may have come from different places that two was a standard, four was a standard, six was a standard. There really is no general consensus other than PEEP is something that is used on a routine basis to maintain alveolar recruitment. Now, not many people will deviate from that PEEP level. If you have a patient that's on 100% oxygen and their PO2 is 80, is that acceptable? No. How are you going to improve oxygenation? Well, you can improve it by increasing your mean airway pressure. Okay, mean airway pressure is pressure over time. Some places will actually increase the peak inspiratory pressure to affect the mean airway pressure. Now, in the neonatal population, there's a hospital up the road that uses that philosophy and they will show up with three or four chest tubes on each side, okay? And that's a result of using high peak inspiratory pressures to generate that mean airway pressure. People are afraid of PEEP for some reason. But PEEP, what it will do is increase your mean airway pressure as a baseline, and what it will do then is as your lungs have opened up and recruited alveoli, it will maintain that alveoli so that they can participate in gas exchange. So it's gonna decrease or it's going to improve your ventilation to perfusion ratio. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to have a little demonstration on the PEEP here next, so I'll get back to this here in a second. I kind of tie PEEP and pressure support together for a reason. Um, so I'll come back to PEEP in a second, but pressure support is the level of pressure that we set above PEEP for people spontaneously breathing so that we give them just a little bit of a boost with each breath. It's not supposed to take over full mechanical support of the patient. It's just supposed to give them a little bit of a support to overcome work of breathing through the circuit. Okay. When you look at PEEP, PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure associated with mechanical ventilation. CPAP is the exact same thing. The only difference is there's no mechanical breaths associated with it. So you're not giving a positive pressure breath with it. They're spontaneously breathing on their own. So CPAP and PEEP are the same thing. Pressure support and BiPAP are the exact same thing. Okay? 
pressure support is BiPAP. Pressure support is associated with a ventilator. BiPAP is with a nasal system that can be ad adapted to an airway, but it's predominantly used for home use and has worked its way into your ERs. So um, that's why I was going to show you the BiPAP machine over here. But PEEP and pressure support is BiPAP. Okay. So let's get back to PEEP. What I'm looking at here, I showed you earlier, was the FRC. So the FRC is the volume of gas left at rest. So with a mechanically ventilated patient, the FRC is your PEEP. Okay, so what we're going to do with this is increase our FRC. And this is a good demonstration that I have here. This is a rat lung. So this is open, just hooked to a ventilator. What's going to happen is he's going to ventilate this rat lung with zero peep. So he calls it zeep. So what you'll see is the lungs will ventilate, but then they'll collapse right back down again. When you establish peep, what happens, you'll see that the lungs don't collapse all the way back down, and you maintain gas in the alveoli so that the, that alveoli will maintain gas exchange with the blood supply, which when you look at increasing ventilation and oxygenation with using PEEP, what you're effectively doing is you are, so you see the areas are collapsed still because it's not able to open them. They're, they have a high surface tension. Now he's added 15 of PEEP. Same volumes that he was generating before. So he's maintaining what he's recruited, okay, and that's with PEEP. Now he's going to turn PEEP off. So your lungs collapse. So now what you notice, those areas are no longer participating in gas exchange, so you can't uptake oxygen. Of course, you're not up getting rid of CO2 either. So that's how PEEP improves oxygenation, or how mean air pressure improves oxygenation, because what you're doing is you're, act you're actually recruiting alveoli that wasn't participating before. And there's your atelectasis on your x-rays. Okay. So what PEEP does is not every airway has the same opening pressure. So you can have, like ARDS, pulmonary contusions, an area that has taken an injury is going to have a higher opening pressure than a healthy lung next to it. Okay, And that's where you get the risks of damaging the lungs because you're now then trying to ventilate by giving bigger volumes, bigger respiratory rates and putting more pressure on the lungs where PEEP is a static pressure baseline and it just maintains what you've already recruited. PEEP doesn't recruit, it just maintains what the positive pressure has already recruited. Okay? So that's how PEEP works. Now, the drawback of PEEP is, unfortunately, your heart's right between the lungs. So anytime you increase PEEP in the lungs, you're starting to put some squeeze on the heart. So it is not uncommon for us outside of the ER in the ICUs when the lung disease starts to progress. And we're not afraid of PEEP here in this institution. Um, it's not uncommon for us to be sitting on PEEPs at 12, 15, 20 to maintain lung expansion. Has anybody ever dealt with or heard of high frequency ventilation, oscillatory ventilation? Okay, what are they using to maintain oxygenation? high mean airway pressures, high distending pressures of like 40, 50 centimeters of water pressure, okay? That's the same thing as PEEP, okay? The body can withstand high PEEP levels as long as it's used appropriately and as long as you're not affecting cardiac output. So 
that's the only real drawback of PEEP, is at some point you will start to affect cardiac output and hemodynamics. So you have to monitor that. Now there is a relation to CPAP and PEEP. They're the same thing. There are times that you may have been, if you've been a resident here out on the floor and you've called for us to start CPAP on the floor in a patient that's in respiratory distress. They've never had it before. Our initial response is, we will not initiate CPAP out of an ICU or an area that the patient can be monitored because as soon as you start putting PEEP on somebody, you have that risk of affecting cardiac output. And that's a hospital standard. It's not my department standard. It's not nursing standard. It's a hospital safety standard. So as long as we transfer that patient to an area that can be monitored and they're stable for eight hours on those settings, they can then go back to the floor. And that's the reason, because PEEP will put a squeeze on the heart if you put high enough. And these machines are designed to go up to 30 centimeters of water pressure. Okay, so it could be high. <clears throat> if you've ever been in the uh, SICU, has anybody ever experienced a uh, P-flex maneuver? Okay, so with a P-flex maneuver, what you're trying to do is try and get an overall idea of what the average opening pressure of the lung is. And the philosophy with that is then you give that slow volume or slow flow maneuver, slowly increase pressure. And what you're looking at is when you start to see the sharp increase in volume exchange as the pressure changes, that's your critical opening pressure and that's what your, your uh, PEEP level should be set at. So it is a good way of finding out if you want to know exactly what your open, opening pressure is. Um, other ways of doing it is we would just systematically increase PEEP and watch ventilation and make sure that we're seeing improvements in static compliances. That's another way of doing it. Anybody have any question on that so far? No, patient has to be paralyzed, no respiratory effort, because if they start to change the parameters of that flow change, you're not going to get an accurate measurement. But the highest I've seen on a woman was 28, and we set it there for eight hours. PEEP is just, no, PEEP is continuous in mechanical ventilation. Sorry, so the, the, the pressure support. Correct. PEEP is just the baseline pressure now. So if you were to turn it to zero, it's the same as atmosphere. Right. So what we're doing is just bringing up what, we, what some people would consider anatomical PEEP. That's okay. why people will set it anywhere from two to six, okay. based upon what literature they like to believe. We here just seem to use, use five, okay? And that's traditional from NICU all the way to SI. And Unless you're in the OR. For some reason, anesthesia still likes to use zero, and we pay for it when they come back, especially in the PICU. Um, so with pressure support, pressure support is just a, a little bit of a boost during the spontaneous breaths only. So when we look at the modes here, when you look at a control mode, a control mode, when the patient wants to initiate a breath on their own, the machine will take over that breath. That's what a control mode means. It's going to control every aspect of that breath. Now, a mode like SIMV, which is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, is what we consider a weaning mode. So what that allows you to do is you can set then a mandatory respiratory rate, tidal volume, inspiratory time for those mechanical breaths that you want the patient to take. During the expiratory phase that you've given them, the patient can spontaneously breathe on their own. So what you're doing then is if I set no pressure support, the patient then is just taking whatever they can through the circuit, okay? Against the circuit. Against the circuit, against all that resistance, and the swizzle stick we call an ET tube we shove down that airway. There's a lot of resistance. So 
with the machines that we use, we've started out with the 900s, the servo 300s, and now in the PICU, NICU, we're using I's. Um, a general, when we look at resistance and you start adjusting pressure support, anything less than 10 centimeters of water pressure, the patient has an increased work of breathing because they're working so much against just the airway that we put them on. So as a baseline, we've always been putting patients on 10 of pressure support. So it's 10 over 5. And what that does is when the patient then takes a breath, instead of the machine taking over all that aspect of the breath, what it does is it lets the patient take whatever volume they want. It lets the patient control the inspiratory time, the flow, the volume that they want. But what we're going to do is give them just a little bit of a flow boost at the beginning to generate 10 centimeters of water pressure in the circuit. And what that will do is it will kind of overcome that initial resistance of flow so that the patient isn't doing all that work of breathing. That's okay. Above peep. Above peep. So, so that's 15 and 5. Okay. Right. So if you're set at 5, but when you think about it, that's the, that's the pressure generated in the circuit total. When you look at ventilation, um, the breath is based upon the change of pressure from peak to baseline, which is above PEEP, and they call that delta P. So whatever your delta P is, that's what your ventilation is. Okay. Okay? Your ventilation isn't 15 over 0, it's actually 15 over 5. Okay? But your pressure generated is 15 total. Does that make sense? So patients that are long-term weaners or are very weak, you can up that pressure support <coughs> to kind of slowly get them to work on their own and then generally over time decrease it. And that was the philosophy of pressure support when it was the first invented or put out there was for patients that were long time weaners, instead of putting them on control ventilation for two hours and then put them on a T-piece for two hours and then back on control ventilation, you could then go ahead and put them on pressure support and slowly work them down over time. That was the philosophy. Just it's only SAMV. Spontaneous breaths only. So when we look at control mode ventilation or assist control ventilation, what you're talking about there is actually controlling every aspect of the breath that the patient wants to take. Now, control mode ventilation and assist control ventilation are kind of merged together over time. But before microprocessor controlled ventilators, you had piston driven ventilators that were very inefficient and really were not responsive to your patients. And one of the ways to take care of that was to lock them out. Okay? Turn it off. The patient couldn't breathe anything what you gave them. So you either gave them such a respiratory rate that you hyperventilated them so that they didn't want to breathe, or you sedated the hell out of them. Okay? That was your options. But that was the 70s. That was a long time ago. But now, with what we're having, is you have the ability of the machines to synchronize with these patients, and pretty much the modes will be assist control ventilation. So what happens then is I'm now able to synchronize with that patient. I set a threshold and I say, okay, when the patient meets this threshold, it means the patient wants a breath. I will give them what I have set. Does that make sense? You set. Okay. You set. You set. The I set the tidal volume, inspiratory time, flows, everything. And the pressure is generated based on those. Based on those, yes. Okay. Based on the resistance of that breath going into the lungs. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure that I understand. Assist control ventilation, every breath 
is exactly the same. And it's, and it's right. graphical appearance, right? And then with SIMV, right. there's, there, there's a machine kind of a breath, and then there can be a pressure support kind of a breath. So with this, you have assist control. So the machine, the flow, it's on, off, on, off. Patient's taken out of the picture. If the patient wants to take a breath, oh, is it not going to give me one of those graphs? I thought I had that one in there. So this is the SIMV one. So if, they, if it was in assist control and the patient wanted another breath, this is SIMV. So the patient's spontaneously breathing. So here's the mechanical breath. He wants or she wants a small breath based on what they want to pull in. So here's their small breath. Okay. Now, if it was assist control, when the patient started this breath, that's what they would have received, a full breath. Okay, that's assist control ventilation. Now, really, assist control ventilation anymore, the machines call it assist control. Some machines call it CMV, control mode ventilation. The trigger mechanism that we have on them, I can turn it to the point where you lock the patient entirely out. So technically, they can be made control mode, but that is so barbaric. Who would want to do that? Okay, it's not something that it, people want to do. Um, but with assist control ventilation, you then set that threshold that they have to meet, and the machine takes over that breath. Patients that come in in respiratory distress that you don't want them breathing on their own and consuming what little bit of oxygen they do get into the system and be wasted just to breathe again, you want to rest them. And to fully rest the patient, that's where assist control would come in. The difficulty is a patient that's coming in and out of sedation, fighting a ventilator becomes an issue. And at that point, it's almost safer just to put them in SIMV mode, even though you want to fully ventilate them, just to kind of get them to synchronize with the ventilator better, even though you're not ready to wean them off. But then you might increase your pressure support so high that those spontaneous breaths are contributing to your ventilation. And that's not uncommon to do. Uh, so our ventilators downstairs, when we intubate, Mm -hmm. They paralyze initially. Mm -hmm. You set them. I think they're all SIMV. If I because you set a rate. It has the ability to do assist control okay. or SIMV. You can do either one. Most of the time, if I'm in the ER, the RT down there, I'm starting on assist control. Okay. Most. I mean, that's usually what it is. But when they're initially, you know, for that first, you know, if we use succinylcholine and they're mm -hmm. paralyzed for ten minutes, right? You'll have to set a rate. Yeah. And they won't initiate any spontaneous breath. So you're breathing right. for them Correct. initially. You're taking over full ventilatory control for those patients during that time. Right. Then but then when they start to wake up, if the if the it all depends upon what your long term goal is. Right. So if it's a patient that you're gonna leave sedated, I'll leave them on assist control. If you're gonna let them start to wake up on their own and hopefully interact with you. I will see how they start to wake up, but I usually will switch them to SIMV, just so that when they start to wake up, it's not as difficult for them to breathe and, and synchronize with the machine. So our, when our so, initial goals are, you know, uh, ventilation and oxygenation, so we, mm -hmm. we got somebody in CHF, mm -hmm. we want to really push the pressure, or we want to push mm -hmm. the fluid out of their lungs mm -hmm. uh, with uh, inspiratory pressure and heat to recruit, yeah. then we're going to have them pretty heavily sedated. Mm -hmm. And then you're just going to breathe for them mm -hmm. in order to generate our goal pressures and our goal, mm -hmm. our, our goal therapy. Right. So on our ventilator downstairs, it's volume control. 
So there are different types. So what I've been talking about so far is volume control. So you're setting a volume and the pressure that is generated with each breath is based upon the compliance of the lungs, right? Okay. Some machines will let you do what's called pressure control ventilation. So you set the peak inspiratory pressure and the volume that is given to the lungs is varied based upon compliance. So if the compliance gets worse, the volume delivered decreases. So here's different philosophies. Which one do you use? Well, in the ER, our ventilator that we have, the safest and most consistent breath that you can get is setting a volume. All right, you're guaranteeing a minute volume when you set volume ventilation, and that's why it's kind of our starting point. Pressure ventilation, if you have stiff lungs, can help out over time. And just the way the flow dynamics work, and I'm not going to get into that, that's a whole other discussion. But it, for stiff lungs, pressure ventilation seems to work better, okay, because of the decelerating waveform patterns. But what happens is, if your lung compliance changes, your volumes will change, which will affect your CO2. And you may not see that. Okay? I'm not measuring volumes on my machine downstairs. The, the, the transport ventilators that are out there and the types of ventilators that you use in the emergency room are not that sophisticated. Um, I had the ability to buy monitors to monitor end tidal or exhale volumes, but it's plus or minus 20% of accuracy. So it's 40% off, okay? Am I going to trust that? No. And we, we did trust it at the very beginning when we first bought them, and it bit us. And since then, we've ducked away from measuring volumes on that ER vent. Having a full ICU ventilator down there in that emergency room or trauma room, you're not going to get to the head of the bed, okay? So physical-wise, it's not appropriate to have it there. So that's why we have the transport ventilators that we do. The ones that we do have are the most sophisticated that were on the market as of last year. Okay, So I can do volume ventilation. It will allow me to do pressure ventilation, but since I'm not measuring volumes, it's not safe. Okay, So that's why we don't use that pressure capability. Um, so when you look at, when you get to the ICUs, you have volume control versus pressure control. Control means every breath is controlled. Volume versus pressure, that's what you're setting. Am I setting a volume or a pressure? Okay, that's the difference between volume control and pressure control. Then you have SIMV pressure control, SIMV volume control, and all that's meaning is, am I setting a volume or a pressure for my mandatory breaths? But the patient is spontaneously breathing with the expiratory phase. Right, so that, so with the SIMV pressure control or assist control, we've got, mm -hmm. the patient can do what they want to do in between. So right. they get mandatory mm -hmm. breaths to maintain whatever our therapeutic goals are. Correct. The SIMV, mm -hmm. the, 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 the pressure, pressure support part of that mm -hmm. will allow them to do what they want to do. Correct. Okay. So the way the philosophies work, if you go into SICU, almost everybody will be on a pressure mode. Usually it's SIMV pressure control because when the patients are waking up you want them to start breathing on their own and getting them off. Okay, That's just the standard. And that's pretty much um, the standard in CV right now as well. Med ICU, the standard is volume ventilation because Dr. Schmidt um, is a big proponent of the ARDS network ventilation strategy. 
So with that, what they use are tidal volumes of about four to six, four to eight per kilo, respiratory rates of 20 to 30 breaths per minute, and an inspiratory time, which for an adult normally is about one to 1.2 seconds, he's using about 0.5, 0.4 second inspiratory times. So he's just panting the patient is pretty much what he's doing. But he uses a volume control so he can control the ventilation with, with that ventilation strategy. That strategy will not work with the pressure mode, okay? Because you can't control the flow characteristics in a pressure mode. So using the ARDSNET strategy in a pressure mode will not work. Okay, so that's why med ICU uses volume control. Now you go up to the peds ICU. We like the pressure modes, but what we really like about the volume modes is the fact that we can guarantee minute ventilation. When you set a tidal volume, you set a respiratory rate, you guarantee a minute volume. Your pressures may change, but you're guaranteeing a minute volume. In a pressure mode, your minute volume will vary, sometimes greatly. Now when we have some of our post-op cardiacs that are coming back that your tidal volumes are 50, 60 cc's, small changes in ventilation will have huge changes on ventilation and your blood gases. So we want to guarantee ventilation. So there's hybrid modes that we have in those areas that we, it will set a volume but it will act like a pressure mode. And that's standard up there. Okay. So if you ever get in a PICU rotation, you'll always see somebody on SIMV pressure regulated volume control. And that's a hybrid mode that we have. It's not available in the, the ER one. Does that make sense? So there's so many different strategies that you can have, but the basics of it, assist control ventilation and SIMV volume is what you're going to focus mostly on in the ER. And that's what AirCare 1 has. Um, they have the CrossVent 2, which is a, a pediatric version that will go down to, they will go from um, normal adults up to 800cc tidal volume down to neonates. AirCare 2 has the CrossVent 3, which is the same that we have in our ER. So CrossVent 3 is uh, kind of a generic version of the adult ventilator. We used to have the CrossVent 4, which was, it was a nightmare. But it does the same thing as the CrossVent 3. <clears throat> Just had more bells and whistles that we didn't use. That's our neonatal transport ventilator. There's the old CrossVent 4. The difference between the CrossVent 4 and the CrossVent 3 that we have now, this is all touchscreen. Everything mechanically is exactly the same. Um, in this case, this is the most confusing ventilator that was there for transports. It has touchscreen. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven screens of parameters. If I were to make changes, I had to bounce around and know where they are to make changes. The CrossVent 3 has two screens. So it's more user-friendly and I can actually make changes faster reacting to the patient than I was on the 4. So that's one reason why we switched from the CrossVent 4 to the 3. Um, plus it has a color screen so it's easier to see instead of this two-tone color here which depending upon your field of view really was difficult to read. But physically it's the same ventilator. And then that was AirCare's old one so that's just to kind of show you there's so many different types of ventilators.